Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Experiments Web Clinic Audio Replay Podcast. Marketing Experiments is an internet marketing research laboratory. The web clinic you are about to hear was broadcast live to an international audience of marketing professionals. Sign up to be invited to future web clinics, as well as gain access to all of our online marketing research at marketingexperiments.com. Welcome to yet another again Marketing Experiments Web Clinic. This afternoon we're talking about discovering your value proposition. We're going to be looking at content that you have never seen before at a Marketing Experiments Clinic. We're going to talk particularly about six ways that you can stand out in a crowded marketplace. We're going to be addressing a subject that I think is essential to marketing. The essence of marketing is the message. The essence of the message is the value proposition. And unless we clearly understand how to form a forceful value proposition, we are going to be swimming upstream, constantly fighting, having to, I would say, overmarket in order to achieve some semblance of our objective. We'll talk more about this. Uh, you can see that it's... Uh, Hashtag web clinic if you would like to uh, participate in Twitter. Let's begin by looking at this case study, Test Protocol 2085. Uh, the company is a nonprofit conservative uh, policy think tank, and the goal was to increase the size and number of donations. They began with uh, a control, this is an email that was sent at the beginning of each year. This is their best-performing email. It describes the foundation, the value of membership, and encourages you to renew. We wanted to test the value proposition, and in particular, the articulation of the value. And so we created this treatment. You'll notice that now we've changed at the process level, something you'll learn later in this clinic, the button's wording. We've also changed the actual call to action emphasizing critical pieces with quantifiable data. We've said that, for instance, our experts testified 45 times before Congress about issues like defense spending, regulation, and federal workers' compensation. These are critical issues designed to touch what matters the most to these members who we want to renew. And the value is laden with specifics. So let's look at it again. This is the control. This is the treatment. When you look at the two side by side, you can see there's a major difference in the articulation of value. But this is a highly motivated list. It's very difficult to actually get a conversion lift because the people coming to this page or seeing these emails are already highly motivated and they, they, they'll put up with a lot just because they believe in the organization or because they want to do something about the problems they see or they perceive to be in Washington. Still, the new page, the new email, produces a 14.6 per 6 increase. Now, remember this. There's no hard cost here. Essentially, I mean, there's no hard cost. We're talking about a 14.6 per 6, 6.66% increase in average donation size. And in addition to that, a click-through rate increase of 20%. That's a remarkable win for a minor change in the messaging of an email. And it underscores what happens when we get clear about the value. Now look, if you're just joining us, uh, this isn't about politics. It's about getting more people to say yes, whatever your offer is. And the key to that is the force of your value proposition. We're going to learn more about that in just a moment. I'm going to take you swiftly to a different type of case study. This is a major multi-billion dollar engineering group. You can see a homepage and a link. Notice the link. In fact, it's right here. 
From that link, you move to a second page where you have three options. The goal of this case study is to get an increase in the number of downloads. Now, notice the experiments control. That's what you're seeing now. And then let's look at the treatment. Big change in the treatment should become obvious to you. You're looking at very quantified, very specific statements of value. These are evidentials that support an overall value proposition. And so this particular treatment uh, is all about adding more value near the call to action. What does it produce? Let's look at uh, the control and the treatment, the two side by side, and the results. And here you see it, a 245% increase in conversion. So there are a number of factors here, but the most important factor was the increase in value. Now let's think for a moment. Here we have a uh, nonprofit conservative political foundation. Here we have a major industrial and engineering group, two completely different types of enterprises. One is not for profit, one is for profit. Uh, one is really about information and uh, issues and the other is about uh, hard science and engineering and, and commodities. And yet, both of them see a dramatic increase when we intensify the value. What's the common denominator? What really happened in this situation that helped us achieve these numbers? That's what's driving much of what we want to talk to you about today, but we're going to make it even more difficult because we're going to say that most of you on this call or in this clinic are aware of the fact that you need to intensify the value. We want to break it down and address a more difficult question. And that is, how do you increase the force of your value proposition when you're in a highly competitive field? In banking, for instance, essentially the products are the same. In the insurance industry, many of the products are the same. They're regulated. In other spaces, without so much regulation, just the sheer number of competitors and the aggressive postures of each often leave you in a position where it's difficult to understand how you can stand out how you can achieve more force with your own value proposition. We're moving in that direction. We're going to talk about six steps. But first of all, let me ask and answer a simple question. The question is this. What happened in the last two treatments? What really happened in the last two treatments? The last two case studies. I can illustrate it with a simple image. You'll notice up on the left, there is a formulation. It's a heuristic. Net force equals the perceived value force minus the perceived cost force. This is part of a more complicated heuristic that we've been developing for many years inside of the laboratory. This supersedes the convergence sequence. Some of you are familiar with the convergence sequence. Uh, C equals 4M plus 3V plus 2I minus F minus 2A. If that means nothing to you, don't worry about it. If you're a long-time listener or uh, reader here, you're probably familiar with it. The point I want to make is that the conversion sequence is really a subset of this larger, more important heuristic related to the value proposition. At MEC Labs, we've spent years asking and trying to answer a simple question. Why do people say yes? When given a whole series of options, how do you get people to say yes to your option over another? And what you're seeing on the upper left is represented in this analogy here, value force is outweighing cost force and essentially the scale has been tipped. The fulcrum has been levered in favor of the left side, the value side. And what really happened if you look backwards, in fact, I think I'll just take you backwards. Look at the control. 
Very little value on the left side of the fulcrum. Look at the treatment. Much more value on the left side of the fulcrum. What you saw happen with the treatment was essentially this. And that's what produced the gains. Now, I can't unpack that heuristic in great detail. It's more complicated. You can see it now in front of you. It represents a series of uh, sub-heuristics that help us understand what's going on in the cognitive psychology of the decision process. We are, in effect, trying to get deeper into the mind. People don't buy from websites. People buy from people. You don't optimize websites. You optimize thought sequences. But what is going on in those thoughts? What's the essential levers that we need to pull on as marketers in order to get more people to say yes? We'll talk about that. And in effect, what we're trying to do is isolate for this particular clinic value force. And as we do that, we're drilling down on this question of value proposition in a highly competitive marketplace. You see behind me lots of examples where the space is highly competitive. I was interviewed in the Washington Post so, two weeks ago about Obama and uh, about uh, Romney and how they can achieve credibility and essentially how they can improve the force of their personal value propositions in the marketplace when the American public is so jaded now because of the claims and counterclaims and the attention of the media and uh, the behavior of many of our politicians and leaders. In a sense, they were asking, the, the reporter from the Post did a fine job on the story, was asking a question that connects to what you have to ask every day when you go to market and determine how you're going to get more people to buy your product. Underneath that question is a more fundamental question, and that is, why do people say yes? How can I get more people to say yes? And in this case, for this clinic, how can I do that when the marketplace is highly competitive? Keeping that in mind, let's just get to the first point. We have two, two sections in this, uh, in this time together. The first is to sort of gain a foundational understanding of the term value proposition. It's one of the most misunderstood words employed in business today. It has a checkered history. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Until we get clear on the semantics, on the term, on the functional definition, we can't even proceed. Once we have that, we're going to walk through those six key uh, ways to differentiate yourself. Let's, uh, let's review some research, however, from our sister company, Marketing Sherpa. You'll see that in a survey we recently conducted across, uh, I don't know how many businesses, a couple of thousand roughly, uh, and all of their key people, interviews, etc., we discovered that nearly half of them can't even be confident that their own marketing team can express the value proposition of the organization. Now, it's been my experience when I'm teaching that that number is less than 10%. But this is what a marketing leader believes about their organization. I don't think it reflects reality, but if we accept it at face value, it's still a frightening statistic. How can the customer be expected to understand your company's value proposition if your marketing team doesn't? Brings me to another chart. Here's the question. Has your organization tested your value proposition? Once again, I think the yes number is inflated. I would question the test and the validity, but let's accept it at face value. 71% of the people we spoke with admit that what they consider the value proposition has never been tested, never been carefully validated, and they're basically hoping. That is not good enough in today's competitive space. And I don't say that to make you feel bad about yourself as a marketer or an organization. I say it with great empathy. The reason is you can get your MBA in marketing at a, 
at a noted business school and still not even understand what the definition of a value proposition is. So, the fact that you don't know is probably not your fault. It's probably the fault of people like me, the educators, who have not trained you adequately and prepared you with a framework to think. Now, at McLabs, we've been working on this issue for years. We have studied every scrap of content we can find. We have went through every academic article ever written. We've quantified those articles, selected 1,100 that have some obscure connection that might in some way help inform uh, our understanding. Most of them don't even attempt to outline a value proposition. In addition to that, we've gone through all the popular works that use the term. It's a new term in business. In fact, if you look, it was coined officially in the 90s, and the primary author of the term uh, was Michael Lanning. But if you look carefully at the chart behind me, we went deeper than that. We said, you know, the term may have been used in the 90s, but was its essence employed, or at least aspects of its essence employed, by other of the uh, great uh, advertising and marketing thinkers. And so we looked at the word unique selling proposition and point of difference and point of parity and differentiation and all of those things and went backwards. We saw the work of, of David Ogilvie, which depended on the work of Rosser Reeves. David, David acknowledges Rosser. And Rosser depended on Claude Hopkins. And I don't know if you know or not, but all the way back in the early 1900s, Walter Scott published a book called The Psychology of Advertising. And it's a pretty good book. Hopkins' book is a bit of a masterpiece. Both Hopkins and Reeves should be read by everyone in this audience. And they didn't fully capture a functional definition, but they certainly had some of the most essential elements. Now, if you're a philosopher, and that's my training, you realize that we could argue over the definition of a value proposition for the next hundred years and create a small industry. That's what academics do. And there would be conferences and summits and events, and we would build careers around it. That is not the point of the MechLab research. We're simply searching for the most useful, comma, functional definition. The definition that enables you to go back and get a dramatic, meaningful result. And so, we have formulated uh, a theory of how to do that, and then we've tested. And you'll see a few examples of tests on the screen uh, behind me, but we've conducted 10,000 plus path tests. We're running studies right now all over the world. We've even sent more than a billion emails testing uh, the messaging inside of those emails. We've conducted 5 million phone calls that we've recorded, and we've surveyed and interacted with more than 36,000 companies. No one in history has really taken this much time to try to understand the essence of the value proposition, its framework, and how to utilize it in the most meaningful way. I don't believe that we have the ultimate answer now, but I believe we have a working answer, a practical answer, one that you can take and use. And I hope that other business uh, leaders, other marketers, and some of my peers and colleagues, academics, will help us further refine the framework. For now, I won't get into the depth of the answer. I won't break down complicated heuristics. I'm going to ask a question. What is a value proposition? And I'm going to attempt to answer that question with yet another question. Because I think this second question, in a sense, frames the answer to the first. It's very carefully chosen, word for word. Don't underestimate the significance of any part of its phraseology. Here is the question. If I am your ideal prospect, 
That's a critical contingency. Why should I buy from you rather than any of your competitors? Now think about that for a moment because that's a key to thinking about all that you're doing in your marketing efforts. All of marketing should influence a decision. Marketing that doesn't influence a decision is a waste. Ogilvy said, every ad must sell. Rosser Reeves or Hopkins said almost the same thing. Marketing and advertising, perhaps they're not the same. That's a different argument, but they're very similar. And both should influence a decision. Even if the decision is a decision about your company, what kind of company it is, a brand-related decision. Let's break it down. So we said, if I am. The word if I, those two words, the word I is essential. It's essential because it requires you to think in a completely different way from an inverse perspective. It is not uh, a reason framed in the person of the marketer, but framed in and and through the person of the market. If I means that you and I have to escape somehow the chains of our own self-interest and climb inside of the skin of our marketplace and incarnate ourselves there and ask if I, meaning let me get out of my thinking and its limitations and get into the thinking of my potential customer and understand my offer through customer logic not company logic. If I am your ideal prospect, that's the beginning. A key, you've heard me say this, if you've heard me teach before, I don't want to give you a better way to see, but I'd rather give you new eyes to see with. That's not a truism. That's not a clever turn of words. Uh, it's not an attempt to sound profound. It's an important principle. What are those new eyes? The customer's eyes. Now, we've all believed this. Instinctively, we know this is true. We, we know that we should be seeing the world through the perspective of the customer. But it's much more difficult to execute on than it is to talk about. And part of that is, part of the, the, one of the keys to overcoming that difficulty is through this formulation, this simple question, this framework. If I am, now let's talk about the am part, your ideal prospect. That's critical. It suggests something else. You are not serving everyone. You are serving a segment. You've got to understand that segment. There are four types of value propositions. I can't teach that today. You can get that in some of our courses and our training. There's a primary and three derivative value propositions. But for now, all you need to understand is this. A proper value proposition is cognizant of and is accepting of the trade-offs. The fact that you can't be the best solution for everyone. In fact, choosing your customer set is one of the surest ways for you to develop the best solution or an ultimate reason. Because essentially, the value proposition is an ultimate reason. It has a because factor. It, it answers that question and think about it. Whether someone says because or not when they answer it, it is a because that motivates the answer to that question. You're giving a reason. You're framing an argument. Now, it says something else. Uh, uh, it says uh, a value proposition has a specific action in mind. Why should I buy from you? The why must proceed or must follow. I'm sorry, it must follow the what. what, what why am I emphasizing that? And, and what are we talking about? Too many times you come to a page and it starts talking about how good the company is, forcing uh, the why down our throat 
not in the form of an articulate value proposition, but a barrage of reasons. And it does so before the customer even understands or the prospect even understands what they're supposed to do. The truth is that in many pages, the clarity is so bad, the confusion is so rampant that we get hit by multiple voices from all sides of the page talking to us all at once in boxes and banners and whirling flash presentations and we don't even know what we're supposed to do there. As important as the value proposition is, we must remember that it is a why. And that the why only has meaning when it follows the what. This leads me to uh, another analysis here rather than rather than your competitors. Underneath this formulation is the notion that people are saying yes when there are multiple options. This, this, this whole formulation is philosophical in its foundation and if they're going to choose your selection, if they're going to choose your offer over another's, it's going to be because you have some sort of only factor. And if the answer to this question that you that you give me, doesn't have an implied or an implicit only factor, we've got difficulties. You'll have a problem with force. Let me stop for a second. It's easy to sit in a classroom or at your desk right now and hear me speaking and sort of follow along with me and even grapple with the concepts and miss the meaning. This, uh, this slide should be like a mirror that you look in and confront yourself. I don't mean this in a, in a harsh way, but marketer, answer the question. Either take one of your main products or take your company itself and tell me why I should buy from you or why I should buy product X rather than any other product or buy from you rather than any other competitor. If you can honestly start to articulate that answer, it's going to force you to think about whether or not you can... Uh, truly market your offering or whether you're simply trying to survive on pockets of ignorance. Let's assume you're trying to answer that right now as I'm talking. If your answer starts to sound like a slogan, if it sounds like a description of your business, if it sounds like an overview of your model, if it sounds like you're simply uh, parroting a clever uh, turn of words or a catchphrase, it's inadequate. The answer you give should begin with the word because. I'm not saying that that because has to appear on the page in your copy, but it should appear at least in your mind with a because. Here's why. Because we, and you start to answer. And that because factor, that, 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 that driver, that conjunction that drives all that you say next, is essentially framing what I would call the ultimate reason. And the ultimate reason must have an only factor. So let's think about that for just a moment and talk about how challenging that is in a competitive environment. Number one, the Internet is uh, a unique phenomenon in the human experience. When I first began to consider what its impact might be on our world, I was sort of alone. Some of you know the story. I tried to get professors at Cambridge and at Oxford to do a research project. This was many, many years ago. I couldn't get anyone interested. I didn't know anyone who knew what the Internet was. At that point, most of us didn't even have modems. Uh, I remember 26 and, or I remember the various iterations until we were at 56 and on it went. I remember postulating what would happen if there was more nodes and greater bandwidth. All of that has uh, unfolded and the world has changed and it's impacted commerce on multiple levels. Number one, in the past, 
weak competitors could survive by their geographic proximity. Their value proposition was derived from nearness, a concept. That nearness translated into sort of a benefit for the customer, convenience, time savings. You could go down the street to the small hardware store. It didn't have everything you needed, but it was down the street. And, 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 and secondly, if you think about it, the Internet now has, has eradicated that advantage for many groups. It has positioned many of us just one click away from our best competitor. And if you are not unique then, in at least one dimension of value, you can't count on geographic proximity to save you. You don't have the potential of being the best solution. And if you are not the best solution, why would you expect anyone to select you? You're just surviving on pockets of ignorance. You've got to have a because. You've got to have an argument. You've got to have a reason. The because is that conjunction that, that drives your answer. The ultimate reason is that single sentence articulation. And the argument is sort of the, the, the long form version. If you were to break that answer out, that ultimate reason out into its key evidentials, you have the argument. And it would be the most compelling argument. The best answer, if indeed you want more people to say yes to your offer. Which leads me to the reason we have this clinic. How do you differentiate yourself? How do you stand out? How do you articulate a forceful value proposition in a highly competitive marketplace? It's driving everything we want to talk about today. My time is very limited. We'd like to do live optimization if, if we can. And to do that, I need to move rapidly through these six points. But each one is critical. Each one is essential. I'd like to pack every moment we have together with useful content that you can take back and apply right away. So I shall try to do so as fast as I can. And you bear with me as we intensify our pace and uh, try to make this as rich and as rewarding as we can do so. So let's begin with the six ways. And here's the first. You've got to focus on your only factor. Here's a page submitted to us by someone who's on this call right now. I'd like you to look at it. It's not an ugly page. It's an above average page. By far, it's an above average page. Now, an above average doesn't make it good. On the internet, average is bad. Sorry to say that. And, and I don't mean to be harsh on the person. This is better than many of the pages that I see. But audience, look at it. Where is the only factor? Where is it? Uh, it says there's a great way to get where you want to go, it's about having a choice. They do have a choice and that's dangerous. And you'll notice there are three evenly weighted, I don't know if they're calls to action, I don't know if they're clickable, which is part of the problem. They're in all caps, that's another part of the problem. It looks like there's a headline above that, learning is a lifestyle, education that fits. Uh, education that fits and learning is a lifestyle wouldn't be considered in uh, your English class as a coherent thought. There's a big jump between learning as a lifestyle and education that fits, and I'm left to make the meaning of it. And out of this confusion, I somehow see a part-time tennis instructor, and I have to wonder, what does that have to do with what I'm seeing over here? Is this all about tennis or not? And if it isn't, are you alienating part of your audience? And whether you are or whether you're not, the entire page looks like a page of headlines. And despite all the headlines, where's the value proposition? Now, you might say, well, it's a combination of X, Y, and Z. Then I asked you a different question. Where is the only factor? What is it that this particular offer has 
that nobody else can match? Where is at least one dimension of value that you excel? You have to ask that. And if you can answer that, it's the key lever that you need to pull on right now so that people who encounter this offer say, well, I should take the time to complete that form, which, by the way, has too much friction. It doesn't have to be that long. It wouldn't be that long if you put the titles of the form inside of the fields and you shorten the fields and... Uh, and if you added some value under stay informed in the form of bullet points, and if you change the phrase to fill out the form below to get our newsletter, anybody that's been in our clinics know that number one, get should begin that sentence, not be in the middle of it. That's called a point middle sentence. It will cost you conversion. Second, you need to ask how strong is the appeal of the newsletter. I'll bet you it's very weak. That's not enough. And that would mean you can tune up the force of your value proposition. And the good news for the person that submitted this page is you could see twice the performance. It reminds me of a page we did with the New England Journal. And I, I didn't optimize it myself. They attended a class like one of these lectures went back and got a 300% increase in, uh, I say New England Journal. It, wasn't, it was University of New England. A 300% increase by fine-tuning the articulation of value. So, I'm back to this heuristic. You'll notice that we talk about perceived value force. I don't expect you to understand this whole heuristic today. I'm not trying to teach that. I'm trying to give you six practical things you can do. One of those is to emphasize the only factor. So, I want to sort of explain that with two bullet points that you see behind me, and they're very important. An appealing offer. Let's suppose that it wasn't just a newsletter. Let's suppose it was something that people wake up wanting but an appealing offer without some form of exclusivity has its force diluted by the number of competing options. Think about that. It's very important. There is a division relationship. In fact, if you look up on the heuristic where you'll see appeal and exclusivity, AP forward slash EX under that, you know, VF equals AP, that forward slash is a division sign deliberately because the exclusivity factor has a division impact on the intensity of appeal. Let's keep going. Uh, an exclusive offer, however, because you can always come up with an exclusive offer. You can always offer something that no one else has. The problem is, does it still have any appeal left? It's very... It, it, any one of us could come up with an exclusive offer right now. You could paint white polka dots on your product, and whatever your product is, and argue that you're the only product of that kind that has white polka dots painted on it. But what does that have to do with appeal? Probably very little. So, an exclusive offer without appeal has its force undermined by a lack of attraction. Now, I suggest that to you because you've got to understand that what you're really after is this zone where appeal and exclusivity overlap. That dark blue zone on this slide behind me, that's where all the force comes from. That's where the power of that dyad is achieved. We call this a dyad, appeal and exclusivity. There are two dyads that have major impact on the force of your value proposition. And the first is the one that you see here, and it has a division relationship. And you are after that particular unique situation where there's maximum appeal and a form of important exclusivity. I could talk a lot more about that. My time is limited. We do teach a course on value proposition, and we go into more depth there. Let me keep going. So, focus on your only factor. Look at the paid search ad. Not this, but this. There is a difference between the two. The specificity, 6,459 plus world clients, that's a lot. In fact, that's the most. That's why it was used. What's the difference? A 22% increase. Not this, 
support such and such with every purchase. We have to sort of protect the identity of that particular partner. But this, what's the difference? The only factor. And what's the numerical difference? 63%. Now, bear this in mind when you see these 63% and all the numbers I'm going to use in the not this but this illustrations. We are talking about treatments. And we're extracting one aspect of the treatment and showing the difference in performance between the treatment and the control. I'm not attributing the entire 63% to that change, but I want you to get a sense of that when we move from the control to the treatment, from this way of thinking to the new way of thinking, it's part of a package that produces a significant gain. Let's move to the second. Provide clear evidentials. An evidential goes back to this uh, heuristic, and it is this sort of quantifiable, believable points that support the ultimate reason. Now you have an argument. Listen to me. The argument is your ultimate reason, that's your value proposition, and the evidentials that support any claim in your ultimate reason. If you tell me you're the world's largest, tell me that you have 614,000 products and no one else does. That's an evidential. You must have an argument. And the argument has a articulated ultimate reason and a series of evidentials. It's built around this notion that you see here. Value accepted is contingent on value believed. In other words, if you tell me that you have value, but I don't believe you, then it's not accepted and it's non-existent for me. But value believed is contingent upon value understood. That's why you'll see up there P equals CL. And notice that series of, of, uh, of dots, vertical dots and CR. They're talking about clarity and credibility. These two come together. First, I have to understand it. If I don't understand it, I can't believe it. But once I understand it, I have to believe it. If I don't understand it, I certainly can't believe it. But if I understand it and I do not believe it, I certainly won't perceive it. And all of this is about perception. Value occurs in the mind. The value you need as a marketer occurs in the mind. That's what that tiny P is in front of perceived value force and perceived cost force. What we're suggesting to you is that the the true impact, the true force of your value proposition occurs when you take the force of the perceived value and you subtract from it the force of the perceived cost. I don't mean price, cost, total cost, even mental cost. What's left, that integer, that number, is critical. If it's negative, you're in big trouble. If it's positive but weak, you're still in trouble. You need a strong, forceful, positive sum from that equation. And impacts on that are clarity and credibility and appeal and exclusivity. And so you need to keep this in mind. I want to quote that one more time because I think it's essential. Value accepted is contingent upon value believed. And value believed is contingent upon value understood. Uh, <laughs> I don't have time to tell you about this ad that ran in the 1800s, but we actually ran tests with this ad. You can see why it's difficult for people to believe us today because advertisers have made so many claims for so long that aren't true. The public is jaded. They don't understand and they don't believe us anymore. And you're now having to make claims against and with those people whose intellectual guard is up, who are not receptive, and you must somehow be heard, that is, heard and understood and believed before you're going to see any significant uptake from your optimization efforts. Which leads me to an example of not this. We did this with InfoUSA. But this. Complete difference. I want to go back. Look, look at this 
vague articulation compared to this specific articulation. 26 million phone calls a year to ensure you get the most accurate mailing list available. Look at the date since 1972. Look at the exact numerical explanation, quantifiable, how large, how comprehensive. Look underneath it at the evidential, 600 full-time researchers. Tele-researchers making 80,000 calls a day to phone verify. See, I could spend the whole hour talking about these two. All I want you to know is that the difference is 201%, not this, but this. In a sense, then, what you're seeing, so I can move to the third point, is evidentials. Here's examples of evidentials from many treatments that we've built and lots of studies and experiments that we've done. These supporting evidentials are the argument uh, that helps build the credibility of your claim in the articulated short form of your value proposition. I'm going to move on. I hope I'm not moving too fast. Again, we teach this over a period of many hours in some of our other courses, but I'm trying to give you something real and practical today. I don't want to tease you. This isn't an upsell. This is content that I hope you can go back and use. Let me go to number three, strengthen process level. Now, I know you don't know what I mean by process level, because it's a phrase developed in our lab as part of our research. We had to develop it to make our framework robust enough to get results in all the different situations we have to apply it. A process level value proposition is a specific kind. Don't let this chart overwhelm you. It is the simple process level value propositions. It's the simple ask that you make to get somebody to move through the steps of your offer. Like the buttons that you ask people to click on. Every time, one of the most important things I have to say today, every time you ask someone to do something, to make a decision, there is a sort of a sub or a derivative value proposition at the process level that comes into action. For instance, you tell me you want me to click to go to the next page. I'm weighing whether or not what I'm going to do on the next page is worth the click. What I'm going to get on the next page. I might have two concerns. On the value side of the fulcrum, remember that fulcrum we saw? I'm wondering... Uh, is this worth it? You know, what am I going to actually get with this download? Is it going to be three pages or 26 pages? If you've done a good job, you've shown me a picture of it. You told me it's 47 pages. You've given me the list of experts who contributed to it. You've got testimonials around it. I'm starting to get velocity in the purchase process. I'm believing it's probably worth it. But when I see that there's another page of information you're asking, I'm starting to wonder, wait a second. Are they going to ask me for six pages of information? How long is this process going to be? Is this going to take 15 minutes? I don't have 15 minutes. I've got a lunch appointment in five minutes. Now you've got negative costs, anxiety, and friction. And what the marketer does is they, they take weight off of the negative side and they add weight to the positive side of that fulcrum. And, uh, and so we have a member of the audience submitting this page. Is there process-level value proposition on this page? Uh, yes, there is. Let's focus on just one. I'd like to help you with the whole page. I can't because we don't have time. In fact, I'm, I'm really pushing it now to complete it. Okay, excellent. So they're, they're queuing me right now telling me how much time I have. Look at the button down there that says send. Now let me ask you something. That's a, that in its own right, I don't mean the value proposition of the product. I don't mean the value proposition of the company's overall position. I'm talking about just the button. You want me to do something? You want me to push that button? Now, here's the question. Is there anything about that button that makes me want to push it? It's all about what you want me to do, not about what I get. It tells me to send. I didn't wake up this morning and say, gosh, I hope I can send something to somebody because that's fun. 
I woke up this morning with a whole different set of issues on my mind. And if I have a particular problem, and this is offering a particular solution, and if by clicking on that button, I'm going to get closer to my solution. And if you tell me that, if you say, get my free copy now, get your instant download now, get whatever it is that this page is offering, and it's spelled out so that the click feels like it's worth it, like the value outweighs the cost, the perceived value outweighs the perceived cost, then you get more people to say yes to that little action, press the send button. Think of it like this marketer, what you're really saying down there for every one of these actions. You know, you start out by saying, will you read this page? And you've got a horrible headline to get them to do so. You don't give me enough reason. The goal of a headline isn't to sell your product. It's not a page title. It's to get you to read the next paragraph of text. That's what a headline's supposed to do. It gets you engaged in a middle conversation. It's a pickup line to establish a relationship. That headline then moves me in and I've got a series of micro yeses on this page until I get down to this forum and now you want my name, my web address, my phone number. Oh my God, I better have a good reason. You better give me a good reason to give you my phone number. And even when I've done all of that, I'm still hesitating and all I see in the bottom is send. There's not enough value being promised in exchange for that click. You're asking me something, marketer. You're saying, will you click? And many people are going to subconsciously say no. What you're trying to do is win more yeses. And to do that, you need to tilt the value in favor so that it's heavier than the cost. So, let's keep going. Not this, but this. Do you see the difference? This was part of a treatment that achieved a 357% return. Not this, <laughs> You've all heard me say this. It's like the worst button of all time. Developed by, by probably database programmers who didn't understand the cognitive message they were sending. But it is, submit! Fall on your knees before the lords of marketing and admit that we've outfought you. We've outpersuaded you. We win! Terrible button. Uh, this. And 361% uh, improvement. Again, in the entire treatment. Not this, but this. 90%. These are all examples of tilting value at the process level. Let's keep going. One more. Not this, but this. 99%. Brings me to the fourth point. Build a compelling narrative to support all that you're saying. I taught this in a previous web clinic. I've explained that the purchase process is like an unfolding story in the mind. And that people tend to arrange their thoughts in story form. And that telling story can be a powerful device for communicating your value proposition. Indeed, look at this uh, page that we see here. This is a, a, a beer of the month club. And the, the new page tells the story that underscores the essence and the message of the value proposition. And the difference is a 14% increase. So, that brings me to the fifth point. Utilize value-laden images. And by the way, I know some of you are thinking, tell me more about the narrative piece. I want to. I just don't have the time. I'm trying to cover six points. And we might, in fact, we've done a whole clinic on writing copy and understanding how that connects to story. And, uh, and if you contact us, we'll send you a link to that or you can go to the website and type in the right search term and get it. But there's more to be said. A whole hour just on that. All right. Type in uh, one of my... Uh, Analyst said, type in the search term copywriting at the marketingexperiments.com website. It'll come up. 
and you'll be able to, to follow with us there. It's me teaching just like this. Number five, utilize value-laden images. Something we completely overlook. We had somebody from the audience submit this page. The question is, how does this particular image communicate value? It is uh, two ladies talking, and uh, without the caption, it has no connection whatsoever. Now, the marketer might be saying, well, that's a foreign country, or the marketer might be trying to communicate something at a very subtle level. This is not the place for subtlety. Don't leave it to the audience to make meaning out of your images. They won't work that hard. Look at the difference. Paying attention. Here's an image. And this could be improved. I'd rather show what it feels like to get relief from debt and not just on a person's face. They're using the image because this is the person that you might meet on the other side of that phone call. But we got a significant lift when we brought the founder who they'd been seeing in television commercials and put him on here. Now, the face is blurred because we're protecting the company's identity just a little bit. But the difference was a 35% increase. Not this, but this. The second image really communicates the nature of the offer. Not this, see the icon, but this. And the difference, 43%. Once again, in each of these cases, the images are doing the hard work of communicating the value proposition. You need a package of images that support the essence of your value proposition. It's not enough if they're sexy. It's not enough if you find them attractive. It's not enough if you think they set a nice tone. Make your images work. Brings me to number six. Link this to your brand equity. This is the point that I have, oh, probably the most frustration about. I can only touch it lightly, but for those of you that are brand side marketers, I'd like to make some quick observations about the connection between brand and value proposition, and then we'll be done. So here they are. I'm going to say them fast. They're very important but I can only say them quickly. Here's the first. Brand is just the aggregate experience of the value proposition. As the customer experiences this value, either directly or through their friends, people they know, they develop a belief about its source. That's the organization that becomes a person in their mind. We, we would stand in line right now if Apple released even an iChicken because we've had such a positive experience with their other devices that we expect something unique and we expect a sort of special experience from the devices that Apple creates. This is the, not the work of agencies that have simply said nice things or made brand promises. This is the experience translating into expectation. Number two, brand awareness is the result. The value proposition is a cause. The strength of the brand is derived not from declarations, anybody can do that, but through expectation. I'll say more about that. The notion of a brand promise is fundamentally flawed. The point of the brand is not to make a promise, but to create an expectation. When somebody selling you something promises you, it's natural that your guard goes up. It's natural that you are suspicious. It's natural that you're in a defensive posture because... People who sell things to us every day make promises they don't keep. But when I have had a positive experience, I get an expectation. And since that expectation didn't, wasn't derived in your heart, it was derived in mine, I own it. I'll fight for it. And 
That's what good branding does. It helps create an expectation. Marketers need more nuance. Our work does not entail forcing conclusions, but rather offering reasons which lead to a sort of inevitable conclusion. If we offer the reasons right, then the, then the, the prospect develops or works towards a conclusion, and when they draw a conclusion about us, it's far stronger than we try to force a conclusion uh, down their throat. And number five, effective brand strategy is implicit rather than explicit. It is achieved not with remonstration, but by implication. What am I saying there? Well, remonstration is when we talk uh, all about exactly what we are. Implication occurs when we imply what we are and we let people draw those conclusions themselves. There is a place in brand. There is a place in brand. And there is a place for brand. But the father of brand was David Ogilvy. We all call him that. His book is the classic. And Ogilvy is the one who said, every ad must sell. And I would argue for you that the confusion around bland is at the heart of the waste of billions of dollars in the marketing universe. I am not anti-agency. A third of the audience today on the phone is probably agency. And I have seen agencies that we've worked with capture the power of this and create the kind of tested value proposition work that supports brand messaging that is awesome in its implications and clear in its results. But it comes from rethinking about the linkage between brand and value proposition. And if you capture that in a highly competitive market space, you will have an advantage over everyone around you. I'd like to say more, but I'm out of time. And as I, as I look what's in front of me, I have net force equals perceived value minus, uh, well, Perceived value force minus perceived cost force and a heuristic. And that might seem quite complex and I certainly can't unpack it all today, but I can give you, again, these six keys. Take them, use them, and you'll find that there's a way for you to gain advantage even in a competitive space. I can tell you that last year in one of the largest banks in the world, we did this and their competitors are on all sides, and yet they saw an average increase of 108%. I can tell you that we did this, and I can give you this name, not that bank, but in Canada, the largest bank in Canada, the Royal Bank of Canada, has achieved success after success. Even though they're a regulated product, they were able to differentiate themselves by focusing on some of these key techniques that you see listed in front of you. And frankly, I could go on and on, not just banks, but an industry after industry showing you how you can take what we're talking about and craft something in your messaging that's powerful, that's forceful, that's compelling. The only thing I should do now, as they're reminding me, because I'm almost out of time, is uh, point out that uh, I'm going to be teaching in Orlando. Is that where it is? And the dates are in front of us, August 28th and 29th. And uh, I'll be teaching on, uh, at the B2B Summit, Marketing Sherpa B2B Summit. That's one of our events. And we'll be talking in great depth about all of this. And if you'd like to, to uh, be there, please let us know. I'd like to meet members of our, sort of our community, people who are listening to these. And at every one of these events, people come up to me and say, I've been listening to you for years, Dr. McLaughlin. It's so wonderful to connect with face to the names that I watch flashing in on the screen. And uh, it would be wonderful if you can come. Thank you so much. Tell a friend about us. And we're going to keep trying to do the research and discover what really works. Thank you for listening to this recording of a Marketing Experiments live web clinic. 
You can sign up to receive invites to future live web clinics, as well as receive access to $10 million worth of Internet marketing research at marketingexperiments.com.